I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Uh, we have a second podcast this week and excited to bring on Jake Nichols. Uh, Jake is the head of intelligence at the 15th Club, which is a golf analytics company that helps players kind of analyze and look at their stats to play better. Um, some of their players, they have a lot of European tour players, are uh, Danny Willett, Darren Clark, Lee Westwood, Matt Fitzpatrick, Juice Luton, Torborn Olison, uh, and many more. Uh, Jake, thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Andy. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to kind of get into you know what what everybody needs to know about the sabermetrics of golf. I you know to kick things off, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into it and your background. Yeah, sure. So uh, I was always a golf fan more than more than anything. I played a little bit when I was younger, but but I was always much more of a fan. Um, and then in college, uh, really started to get into looking at sports in a statistical way. So baseball and basketball were the two big ones back then. And after a year or two of you know reading blog posts and and books and whatever was available in those sports. I started to wonder why golf didn't have very many people operating it in it. And this was before Mark Brody and Strokes Gain got big, before his book came out. And so there were only a handful of people really in the corners of the internet who were analyzing golf with, with data. So I just picked it up as a side hobby in college, and it's grown into a full-time job with 15th Club for the last two years. That's cool. Did you do anything else before you got into that in, uh, in the working world? Nope. This was uh, pretty much straight out of college um, after a little bit of loafing around the house. That's cool. Um, so tell us a little bit about like what's a day in the life for you? Like what do you, what, what do, you do on a daily basis with like golf numbers and like, how, how does it work? So it could be really anything. Um, Right now, I'm working on a report for one of our players, basically a checkup for him. He's off for a few weeks now, so he's looking for a you know a breakdown of his game. How's he trending over the first few months of the season? So it could be that. It could be working on a consulting project for one of our clients. Um, we've gotten involved in a lot in the last six months to 12 months, and just how can how can golf organizations use their data better? Um, so it's analyzing data, it's um, working on software tools to help the players capture their data better, to help these organizations track their data better. Um, so a lot of numbers, a lot of coding, uh, a lot of data visualization, which I, which I really enjoy, and then you know, just figuring out how best to communicate insights to the players, caddies, other clients. Uh-huh. So you know, we've seen like this 
sabermetric boom in baseball and basketball where, you know, they've kind of completely revolutionized the sport and, you know, the philosophies behind the sport, how you assemble teams, how you how you even, you know, draw plays in basketball. How far behind is, is golf from that? So I would say when I think about using data in, like, the sports arena, I think there's kind of three phases. The first is someone decides to start tracking all this stuff. So um, the PGA Tour installed shot link cameras over a decade ago. So now they have all this data to play with. So the second stage is kind of convincing people that that data can be used to create insights, that we can learn from it, that it can help players play better, it can help the tour you know, organize events better. It can, you know, do all this, do all this stuff, uh, basically what we're doing right now. Um, and then the, the final stage is it's fully accepted. And I think in baseball, it's fully accepted. All the teams use it. Um, everyone talks about it. It's on the broadcast. It's in the studio shows. Um, I really think golf is still kind of in that second stage where, uh, we're still trying to convince some people out there, some stakeholders in the game, some players, you know, of of the uh, of the validity of the results, um, how it can help them out, and really get everyone um, comfortable with talking talking about data. So I really think it's you know it's behind baseball for sure, um, but it's also a little bit easier than like applying analytics to basketball where you have to track the ball and 10 players and in this court you can you know kind of only focus on where's the ball positioned at each time or one player swing Mm -hmm. so it's a little bit easier of a problem than basketball or hockey or football what what would you say is the the biggest pushback that you get like what's the most regular um kind of feedback against the analytics and in using them to kind of try and, you know, analyze performance? Uh, I would say there's a few things. The first is a lack of understanding of how this is, uh, this is different. Um, strokes gained, it takes a while to really understand it intuitively, I think. You can't really understand it intuitively, I mean. Um, so I think there's a little disconnect. You know, how can you know this is better than just looking at the stats that I've looked at for 10 years or 20 years, or maybe don't look at it at all. And the second one is um, when it conflicts with what the player or the caddy or the coach is seeing with their eyes. Um, Try telling a player who you think his iron game is merely average that, and he might think it's, you know, top 25 in the world because maybe he's getting the consistent contact that he's looking for, you know, his swing feels great, but maybe the results just aren't there or the strategy in the shots just aren't there. So there's, it's, it's difficult sometimes where there's some resistance to what the data is telling you. Mm -hmm. So with, when you guys start working with players, um, you know, what kind of stuff, does that encompass obviously it's you know looking at their stats you know does it go into you know you touched on strategy does it go into how to play the course and and different tendencies and and stuff like that 
So the initial step that most of our clients come to us with is um, I just want to track my performance, track how I've been playing in all these different areas. Uh, so we have a tool, a software tool that they can enter their data into. It tracks their data over time. They can you know, slice and dice it however they like to look at it. And that kind of data is really used to influence everything else we do with them mm-hmm. in terms of reports and strategy and, and, you know, everything else. So that's kind of the initial thing is someone will come to us and say, you know, I'm, I'm just looking to improve, looking to get better. Um, how can you help me track my performance and, you know, and figure out what's the one or two things that I need to work on to, you know, become a top 50 player, top 25 player, top 10 player eventually. Mm-hmm. And then once, once we have that sort of data, once they're integrated into that sort of software tool, then some of them are more interested than others in, in things like on course strategy. So we have a few guys who we help prepare um, for some of the big events and some guys who are interested in it week to week, just what can you tell me about the course? What can you tell me about, you know, what should I be working on in the last three weeks of practice before the masters? What sort of shots am I going to face at the, at the tournament, uh, that, that I should be preparing for. And then at the end of the year, there's some clients who are interested in scheduling, you know, what's the one or two courses that I should play this year that I don't normally play that, that whether it's something about the field or something about the course fitting my game, uh, that I can really get an edge and, and maybe outperform my normal level of play at that course. Interesting. Um, so with the, you know, the specific courses, is, is there, you know, how much is like the horses for courses? Is it, you know, overplayed or, or how real is it? Uh, it's definitely a factor for sure. Um, I've seen some people dismiss it, uh, because if you look at just, the thing is, if you look at just results of players at a course, so this guy's gone to, like uh, Sawgrass his last five times and he's had four top tens. It's not really telling you that much because it might be that that player is just really good. You know, if that's Henrik Stenson and he's top 10 four times out of five, well, maybe that's pretty close to what you'd expect there. Um, so the actual, it's it's difficult to tease horses for courses out of the data. I don't think you can just look at a, you know, look at a sheet that gives you his results for the last 10 years and there's more to it. It's more about how, you know, how does that player's game fit with the course statistically and if we and if we can figure that out, then we can go to tell Matt Fitz, Fitzpatrick or Danny Willett, who have never played a lot of the PGA Tour courses, and we can say, well, our numbers say your game fits well at Colonial, or your game fits well at, at the Travelers, etc. Mm-hmm. That's it's interesting. So, with with regards to kind of you know how you, how you guys weight things, and obviously with with Mark Brody's kind of strokes gained um book he you know he put a big discount on on kind of putting and you know just preached about how you know tee to green was so much more important and and anything inside of 50 yards was relatively you know everybody's the same what would you say um 
is the biggest difference between say your you know top 50 player and number like 250 in the world rank like you know somebody that's kind of like a, a fringe tour guy whether it's a european tour or pga tour kind of bouncing between the web.com or the challenge tour and the and the big tour uh i still would think it's sort of ball striking stats mm-hmm. for sure um I would say probably a combination of, of long game and also um, driving ability. So I imagine there's a lot more guys in that sort of churn area on, between the web and the and the big tour who can hit it a mile but can't control it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of guys in that top 50 in the world range who who maybe don't hit it as far as those big hitters but they're really controlling it. They're putting it in play and that kind of above average distance plus, you know, average accuracy is, is really, really what sets players apart. So yeah, definitely, definitely long game is kind of still the separator at that level. I'm curious. I, you know, something I I look at is I I kind of think that the world rankings and, and the PGA tour is a byproduct of the golf courses they play. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago at Harbortown, you see like a, a distinctly different leaderboard than you do week over week of the PGA Tour. And I think there's a few courses that kind of fit that mold. Do you think that, um, you know, the, the golf courses that the PGA Tour plays, the TPCs, the, you know, the courses that really value, you know, kind of, do you think the courses diminish what, a player's skill inside a hundred yards as much and then promote the long game? Or do you think it's it, in terms of like your everyday golf, that long game is, is more important? See, I think, I think there's definitely rewards based on the change in the game over the last 15 years. Um, the ball change and the, the distance change, there's rewards to making the courses um, fit that sort of elite PGA Tour player, mm-hmm. um, but I don't really think that they diminish talent inside 100 yards. Sort of short game. Um, right now on tour, the average course you hit driver about 10 times around or so, which I think is a pretty reasonable middle ground. Uh, it doesn't give the best hitter, like best drivers in the world, the ability to hit driver on every single hole. Uh, it also doesn't really take it out of their hands um, for ten holes around. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the the rough is definitely more playable than maybe is fair towards really to promote um, letting those big hitters out of jail when they when they rip off a loose one. Okay. Um, so, because I, I think a lot of it, you know, obviously conditioning too, this is, uh, firm and fast conditions. How do you guys see, you know, like conditions play a, play a factor, like whether a course gets rain-soaked and it's soft versus, you know, firm and fast. Does it, it, does it, do you see, you know, differences within the same golf course, say like a Riviera where it was soaked this year versus – you know, when it's played firm and fast in the past. I've never actually looked at it, but you can, I, 
I imagine if you look at the scoring, you can definitely see see it come out in the scoring, um, and see it come out in really all the other stats. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw it at at the match play this year, where the fairways were basically concrete, and the balls were just running out 375. Um, and also when the when the greens slow down, you definitely can can notice it in the uh, in the punting stats. I think it it was at Innisbrook a few years ago where they had reseeded the greens or changed something with the green surface. Yeah. And everyone was leaving the putt short. And it was, we, we like to look at, uh, this stat, like how, how often do you get it to the hole or just past the hole with your putts? And that, that course was like breaking our scale that, that year, just yeah. because the players weren't just weren't used to putting on the surface. So conditioning can be a huge factor uh, with putting for sure. I, I remember that it was their brand new greens and yeah, everybody left it short. So with that stat, getting it to the hole, like what are some other stats that you guys look at that, you know, aren't, you know, on PGA tour.com? Uh, a few of the core specific ones that I like to look at week to week is, uh, what kind of trouble can you get into off the tee? Mm-hmm. So if we compare how a player scores, from the rough or the fairway bunker to uh, how they score from the fairway. Um, and then just average that for all the different players at each hole. Uh, you can get a, basically you can get uh, the value of how much it costs you if you don't hit the fairway. Okay. And that can range at uh, Sawgrass, uh, East Lake, I think Mirfield Village. They're up near about half a stroke penalty. Average is somewhere around 0.3 or 0.3 and a half. And then on the low end, you get your Augusta Nationals or Riviera. Uh, I think this week's uh, TBC Louisiana is, is low, somewhere down 0.2. So that right, kind of gives you an wide. indication of, you know, how much it, how much does it pay to be a straight hitter this week versus, versus another week. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's always a lot of debate with Augusta and like, you know, does putting matter? Like what does a, does a right to left ball flight matter? Like in, in your estimation, what are the most important stats there? Uh, so definitely distance since the course got lengthened. Um, that's most years that stands out as something that, that really predicts scoring. Um, and that's, there's a few reasons for that. Number one is it gives you the ability to attack some of those holes, um, like 13 and 15. Uh, number two, if you can get it around the corner, number 10. Um, and the second one is most big hitters also are a little wild off the tee. Uh, so at Augusta, if you miss if you miss the fairway, either you're in the second cut, which is basically nothing or you're in the trees and you can normally play a shot out towards the green, there's very little penalty for being wild. So if you're a big hitter who hits it 20 yards past the field and maybe uncorks really one poor shot around, at Augusta that one poor shot isn't really costing you like it is elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I would say those are the big things. Um, And that would kind of played out this year. Sergio is a big hitter. Justin Rose is a big hitter. 
it it seemed like Sergio was hitting it further than he usually does. I don't know. I just from the naked eye was was he like? I, it, I mean, was that an extraordinarily long performance for him? It's definitely above average. Sergio is one of those guys who I kind of have the same reaction to you. He's he's sneaky long in some of these events mm-hmm. uh, where he's hitting it. You don't really think of him as somebody who's a big hitter, but. He definitely was at Augusta. He was right up there with, uh, not maybe not quite Rory, but with hanging with the next tier guys. Uh-huh. Um, so with you know kind of the world golf rankings, like what? How do you view the world golf rankings? And if if you're if you're kind of opposed to them, how would you change the rankings to better really gauge who's the best player in the world at a time? Okay, so there's there's two things. One is um, numerous people have found they're a little biased against PGA Tour players favoring players from other tours, which is which is definitely valid. Uh, it's easier for because the the official World Golf Ranking has something called a minimum points. So these really weak events on the European Tour, the Japanese Tour, the Asian Tour are fixed that they have to award at least a certain number of points. Mm -hmm. And what happens is these events have quite weak fields compared to PGA tour events, but they're still awarding the minimum number of points that makes them look stronger than they really are. Uh So there's a few players every year who are, who are benefiting from, from going perhaps to the, the hero Indian open and winning an event that maybe it should award 12 points but it awards 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is uh, the World Golf Rankings really award or reward accomplishment. So finishing number one is always better than finishing number two in a comparable event. Yeah. And that, I, I mean, it makes sense as something that the, they're really designed to decide who gets into these big events and accomplishment the golf world has decided is is the best way to to you know figure out who gets to be in these events. Uh, it's completely different if you're trying to judge who's performing better, who's playing better, who the better player is. You know, if you put them out on the course for 18 holes, mm-hmm. uh, and that you look at that numerous cases throughout the year where someone wins a tournament, maybe they only beat the field by. Uh, 12 shots the field average over the week uh, which is comparatively small and then you have another you know the extreme example of this is Stenson and Phil at the Open Championship last year Mm -hmm. Uh, Phil Mickelson had probably the second best performance in a tournament in the last 15 or 20 years and he he only got 50 world ranking points or 60 world ranking points Um, whereas in any other event, if he had produced that performance, he would have, you know, he would have won. And then, you know, so if I understand what you're saying, like a, a guy that, you know, like just is like a top 20 machine is kind of hurt by it, you know, um, because they, they aren't awarded as many points as say, well, I, I think Kevin Chappell's kind of a, a good example of, you know, this year he hasn't been playing very well, but he just started kind of found something, I feel like, the last couple of weeks. And, you know, then he wins, you know, probably not by that big of a margin, 
but he jumps 20 points in the world rankings. Yeah, just for winning, just for winning one tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely agree. If you, the fact is, if you finished in 20th place, I'd love to be able to quickly run the numbers for you, but but I can't. Uh, if you finished in 20th place every week on tour, you'd be one of the best players out there. Uh-huh. Um, but your world ranking, I don't think it would be very good. <laughs> you might be in the in the hundreds, maybe, <laughs> just because you wouldn't have like the. My intuition is that you wouldn't have enough points to challenge challenge at the top. That's that's interesting, and it, it, but then it also comes down to like definition of what the best player is. Is it consistency or is it wins? You know, like you know how do you, how how would you go about valuing? You know, say a, a player like when you start to look at you know greatest players of all time and and their scope of their career. You know, how do you weigh? you know, dominance and wins versus a guy, a, a consistency factor. I think, uh, I, I rely a lot more on results like wins, major championships as the time scale gets long, longer. So if I'm judging a player's full career, maybe like tiger versus Jack, mm-hmm. then yeah, I think it's fair to look at, you know, majors and events won and, and those sort of things over a year. I think if you're judging who's the best player by who has five wins and who has three, then I think that will not lead you to the best player as often as looking at, you know, more performance based metrics. Mm -hmm. So it'd be more like in the strokes gain department and, and everything like, and, and kind of those stats less so on wins. Yeah, exactly. Like, at 15th club, we have a stat called performance index, which basically rates every player in the world against each other okay. based on, you know, adjusts for the strength of the fields that they play and the difficulty of the courses and, and, uh, ways recent play more, all those things. And I think this week, Rory is the number one player okay. over, over anyone else. And, I'm not so sure anyone right now would say Rory is the best player in golf. People would probably say DJ. Um, but even before DJ fell down the stairs a few weeks ago, Rory was very close to DJ in our numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, enough that one week could have changed things if DJ didn't play that well at the Masters. Um, and I think anyone in their right mind right before the Masters would have said, you know, DJ is the best player in the world and it's not really close. Um, because he had accomplished so much in his last, really, I guess, nine months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Rory, you see him week to week is just, he's, he's in the top 10 every single week and he's often in contention and really right there with, with DJ. I, who would, uh, on that list, on your guys' rankings, like who are some surprises? Um, I, I'm assuming obviously you've got, you know, Spieth up there. And Rom is probably up there really highly based off of his recent success. But, you know, who are some kind of, I guess, like, I'm just kind of curious now. Yeah, so until Rom won, I think we had Rom when he won in San Diego, he was rated in the teens in performance index before he won. And I think he was, where was he in the world ranking? Maybe like 50th or 40th or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay, he was he was 
outside the top 100 before he won, and then he was 46th after he won. So that's a good example of where the world rankings kind of screws a guy like him who's just absolutely dominant for his first 20 events on tour. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of pushes him back. Um, Molinari is a guy who's, who we have as a top 20 player right now. Again, he's extremely consistent. He's always you know, just outside the mix. He's rarely missing cuts. Uh, Rafa Cabrera-Beo was like that for most of last year. Yeah. He, he kind of took a, maybe until the Ryder Cup and maybe still isn't kind of popping up on people's radar. But he was he was rating as a very very good player last year, and it's again because you know week to week he was playing so consistently well. Mm-hmm. So if you were gonna say like you know this is a guy that's gonna break out, that maybe not a name that's not on everybody's radar, like who could be the next you know Thomas Peters uh, type breakout player? Who who would it be? Based off of numbers. Ooh, that's tough. I'll have to. Uh... Give me, give me about 10 minutes and I can come back to you with an answer. Okay. <laughs> I'll do some, do some searching on the sidelines while, yeah. while we talk. Um, so in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the you know, kind of players that you're working with now, it's, it's very European tour heavy. Um, you know, is there any guys that you look at and think, like, uh, I'd really like to work with this guy because I know we can make him you know, a better player? Like, if so, like, who, who would be some names that you'd love to kind of work with and, and talk about, you know, where there might be some, you know, deficiencies that could, you know, greatly improve play? Well, I'd, I'd love to work with Bryson just to experience what that would be like for a week, uh, just to get inside of his head and see see what crazy theories he's, he's come up with on his own. Uh-huh, so that's one. Uh, an interesting one who is way off the radar is uh, JJ Henry. Uh, A lot of our stats, a lot of the stats, when I look at him, he pops up as someone who plays very conservative golf. Uh Uh, He lays up off the tee a lot. Um, When we measure aggressiveness in terms of hitting the shots into the green, he always comes up as very conservative. Uh, I think if his putting numbers are conservative in terms of, uh, he's not really giving himself the chance to make putts sometimes by not getting it to the hole. Mm-hmm. So I think if we could <laughs> could sit down with him and have him buy in and maybe play a little more aggressive golf, then he could, you know, maybe he could improve. So that's kind of one off the it's off the radar. Of, kind of amazing that that's like you know one of Tron's like whipping boys. Uh, oh, and you can absolutely see why it's his whipping boy because he he does i would say he babies the ball around the course <laughs> so that he can you know make a cut and cash a check for for 50th place who, who um, would you say is the most miscast you know whipping boy of tron Ooh, i think it has to be brendan Steele. uh brendan Steele is a big numbers uh a big guy that numbers love. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure how into numbers he is, but but the numbers really like the changes he's made to his game. He's uh, really improved how he drives the ball in the last few years, mm-hmm. uh, and and he went from being completely ineffective off the tee, not long and not straight, to being a pretty big hitter 
who can really control his ball and and really really gains strokes in the long game now. So just in terms of golf ability, that that gets unnecessary abuse from Tron. I would say I would say it's Brendan Steele. I have always wondered that too because he does like he rips it and he he plays pretty aggressive, but. You know, you get on the wrong side of Tron. I, I mean, I, I'm shocked that you brought up J.J. Henry. I mean. <laughs> he's he's someone who has always uh, always stood out in that sort of uh, aggressiveness data mm-hmm. that we that we've looked at. Uh, so anytime I uh, anytime I run a new stat, J.J. Henry is one of the first people I check where he is in it, <laughs> and normally he's sticking out in some different direction. Unbelievable. Um, so do you, do you say like I'm a web.com tour player and I have, you know, they don't really have like the shot link data and everything. How, how would I work with the 15th club and you guys, like how, how would you guys go about that? Would it be manual stats they'd have to keep? Yeah. So, so right now, most of our clients on the European tour will have their caddy track the data during the round since the caddy already pretty much knows the length and lie of each shot just write that information down and input it into our app at the end of the round. It's, it's really simple. It takes 10 minutes and you can immediately get feedback on how you played that day if you're interested in it. Uh, but yeah, it's manually tracked and that is because the European tour, uh, doesn't have a shot link esque system. Uh, neither do any of the other tours. So that's really designed to be a solution for, LPGA players, web.com players, European tour players, you know, anyone who doesn't have someone tracking that for them already. Could be, you know, even amateurs like, like me, huh? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's in discussion for an amateur product. There's a, a lot more competition in that space, but yeah, I, I, I think about it cause I, I play in, you know, uh, am stuff and mid am stuff. And it, I'm always curious about my game and I, I kind of like I'm probably the exact person that you hate because I'm like, well, I, I think I hit my wedges well, but it could have been, you know, terrible wedges. What would you say to like the, you know, everyday golfer? Like, say I wanted to get into thinking more analytically, what should I do? I would say first start collecting data, uh, no matter whether you use, you know, a product or uh spreadsheet of your own i would say start tracking objectively tracking data on your game uh maybe if it's even one part if you if you think say you think your putting is very poor um take detailed notes of the 30 rounds you play this summer and how you put Mm -hmm. and and that really i mean really we're I say this to a lot of our clients all the time is we really need data to help you out. You know, we're not a, we're not a, we're not using our eyes. We're not using feel. We're, uh, we're judging based off data. And if you're an amateur who's, you know, who's looking to improve rigorously track your data, um, however you can and, uh, and really judge where you are. And then maybe you, Maybe you spent all summer tracking your putting and you're actually not that bad yeah. and you can move on to something else, but maybe it reveals that you're, you know, that you're really poor outside of 40 feet with your putting or really poor inside of 10 feet with your putting. And, and that's something that you can then, you know, whether it's taking a lesson or 
looking for instruction, you can, you know, look to improve. So if I wanted to go all in, I, I, I'm diving in, I'm going to collect the data. Like how deep do you go? Do you say I, I hit a tee shot, I hit it 285 yards to the right center. Is it, is it to like the specific side? Say I missed the fairway. Like how, how detailed would you go? In our basic, in our basic app that tracks player data, it's, it's a simple amount of data just to get the, to get their strokes gain calculation out. Mm-hmm. Um, you need the lie of the ball. You need the distance it is from the pin. Uh, tell me if it's a impeded shot. Are you behind a tree? Cause that changes things. Are you behind the lip of a bunker? Um, when, and what's the, what's the club you used and where did you miss relative to your target? Okay. Excuse me. So if you're aiming, uh, 10 feet right of the pin, and you put it 60 feet right of the pin, then that's a miss to the right. Uh, and just that's the basic level of, of tracking data. Interesting. So it, I imagine that one of the biggest things people mess up is how many feet away they are when they're putting. Because I always feel like people underestimate how far away they are. They'll be like, oh, I missed a, a, a five-footer, but they were really like eight feet away. Or if they make that five-footer, it turns into an eight-footer. <laughs> that's true it's uh it, it's a it, and then you know like i, I I'm, it's it's really interesting because i i talked to usc's coach and they and they started to do strokes gained and something he said to me that i found like really interesting was that they have above tour average ball strikers but none of their players are above tour average putters um, and that's the number one team program in the in the country. So, like, this is where my kind of bias, where I say, like, putting really does matter, because these guys, are, or is it that all these guys are so good at putting that it's diminished? Yeah. So, so I think one of the things that's come out of uh, Mark Brody's work is is how important the long game is, mm-hmm. and. People have kind of stuck with that as the message, uh, and that message is that it's the most important, not the only thing that matters. Okay. Uh, and I think that kind of gets lost sometimes. But definitely, if you look at at the spread between what the best and the worst putters are doing, it's smaller than the spread between what the best and the worst drivers and best and the worst approach shot players are doing. Mm-hmm. So really, that. That is it on the on the pro tour. I guess yeah. I have I have no idea how the USC results are are coming out like they are. If they do really have um, tour level ball strikers in that program, that's incredible. Yeah, I, I you know I found it pretty interesting that like not even their best putter was a, a in a, a plus strokes gained player, but you know yeah. I I mean they do have like you know some of the best players in the country you know i think they've got two walker cuppers and they've got that they've got that kid that uh played in the masters like last year who's a freshman who from uh china cheng jin so i mean they have elite you know kids but that's a so that's a good question what would you say is you know kind of the the barrier for you know like young kids when they come up like is there a common skill that they usually lack you know when they're young and on tour 
Yeah, I would say without having studied it that closely, short game would would be one. Um, course management would be another. Maybe you maybe you step on the tour and you can hit it long and you your ball striking's okay, but you know you're really inconsistent with a wedge. You don't chip that great. You can putt well inside ten feet, but maybe when you lag it, you're you're awful. Mm-hmm. And those are just sort of the kind of things that you can solve by putting yourself into better places um, around the green. Maybe you don't play so aggressively in in certain danger spots. So I would say those are the things that kind of separate I feel like the best players. It's so much reps too, you know. Cause oh, like, absolutely, yeah. And like the mental side of it. Like I think about myself, like you know, in in amateur tournaments when I was 24 versus now when I'm 31, and I think completely different. I play completely different. I play so you know, like I'm just smarter. And I imagine that's a lot of like the maturation, like. I think Dustin Johnson's a good example with this wedge thing. It's like it's not that he just started practicing. He might have learned, you know, stuff and along the way. It's not like he just started practicing wedges, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're spot on with that. You just learn. You learn how to be a better player. Uh, you learn how to attack different courses because you've seen them before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a big thing. I was listening to to uh, No Laying Ups podcast with Harold Varner, and Harold Varner said that you know he doesn't think Tiger even practices that much at the course because he's seen everything, and that's true. He's seen everything for 20 years. You know he doesn't need to be out there grinding, whereas you know maybe Harold Varner, a rookie or a second year player, you know they do need to be out there grinding and and learning these courses. I was kind of surprised when he said he shows up to tournaments on Wednesdays. Yeah, I mean, that's the it works for him. Yeah. I don't know how it works for him right now, but but if that's uh if he likes to fly home every week, that's what he got to do. Yeah. It, how what would you say is like the disadvantage of a of a rookie? I mean, obviously they already have the chips stacked against them with regards to like the schedule and and the ranking system, but playing these courses for the first time versus the veterans like that have seen them for years. Like what, what would you say is like, you know, first time course, like disadvantage, is it a half a shot around or. I don't think it's that big. I, I don't think it's that big at all. Um, I think the disadvantage is really that a rookie's not going to be as good of a player. If you put a, if you put, put the tour players in two different groups, rookies and non rookies, uh, the rookies are going to be just worse players, just just because it makes sense. You know, these veterans have been on tour for for longer. Uh, they're normally more skilled players, so I think that's that really drives much of the disadvantage rookies face, is they just aren't as good. So, like, how good is John Rahm from like from a strictly numbers standpoint? Like, what? Where are you, what are you saying? Like I've I've said for a long time, he's he's got number one written all over him, and you know, I think now everybody's saying that. But like, is he a, a generational player? I think he could be. Uh, right now, I think he's he's already in that that like second tier of players mm-hmm. in terms of you know f- fifth, sixth, seventh best in the world. And 
just because his his skills so far seem to be he drives the ball extremely well and he hits his irons well. That's the kind of that's the kind of template that Rory and DJ have really ridden to the top of the game. You know, as they've fixed slowly fixed flaws in their game and gained a tenth of a stroke here and a quarter of a stroke there. Uh, he's exactly John Rahm is the, exactly the kind of guy I can see tweaking a few things and and being you know the next new number one player in the world. Mm-hmm. We're uh, you know like who would you say is kind of like the outlier of stats? Is there anybody that just like you know based off of your numbers and then they, but the performance is like the complete opposite of what your numbers would suggest? There's a handful of guys who uh, are are quite inconsistent with how they play. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll have weeks where they look like look outstanding and they'll contend in tournaments or win. And then they'll have a lot of weeks where, where, uh, they, where they're missing cuts and missing cuts badly. Um, I think Thomas Peters was a guy like that for, for a long time. Um, basically up until like last fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he's, you know, whatever that leak was in those weeks, he's kind of fixed that, and he's so much better of a player. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of those young, mostly young and inconsistent players, are really the ones where where stats don't tell as accurate of a story because it's measuring their average week, which isn't very good, instead of their best weeks when they're contending and winning. Yeah, I I, I think that's. Uh... And so much of that can be just adjusting to, you know, life as a PGA Tour player, traveling, being on your own, all that stuff. Absolutely, yeah. All that sort of stuff that we discussed about 10 minutes ago, the adjustment to the tour life. You know, you go from being in a college campus or in a, you know, your national team's training facility uh, for most of your time and practicing with the same people and, and now you're you're spread around 20 countries around the world or all over the United States and you're expected to perform or you lose your card. Yeah. It's a tough life. Um, so, you know, with this week being a new format and I, I'm kind of interested to hear how you would do this, like how, if you were playing and, you know, or say you have a player that, you know, is in this event, how would you advise them about going to pick their partner? Cause you always hear, Oh, there'll be a great, their games complement themselves each other so much. Like they'll be a great like. What what would be your formula, and how cliched is the current one? Uh, well, the the current one, I don't think it's fully thought through. In our in our Ryder Cup work, we delved into sort of what makes a good foursomes pairing, and what it really is about is. Player A and player B both have things they do well and both have things they don't do well. And it's kind of about putting player A in situations where they're not going to be causing player B to hit one of their bad shots. So if you have someone who struggles with their short game, pair them with someone who's just hitting greens relentlessly. Uh, So they're not, so they're hitting a 40 foot putt instead of a, a 20 yard chip that they might, that so, they might screw up. So Graham Dillette, you'd you'd pair with like the best ball striker in the world. 
Yeah, I'd put pair Graham Dillette with with Graham Dillette. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll of... see how that works this week without Graham Dillette hitting his approach shots into the green. Oh man, I didn't even think about that. I wish I would have uh, thought about that before. Um, what what so what else do you what else do you look at? Okay, so I I took a look at this uh, this morning. Unfortunately, I was disappointed that we didn't have any players choosing to play this week. Because I, I do think it's an interesting intellectual exercise. Uh-huh. Uh, so we kind of identify key shots throughout the course. And these are shots where the difference between how players perform on them is is really wide. So that they can either hit a good shot that gets really re- rewarded or they can hit a poor shot that gets really punished. Mm-hmm. And a good example of that type of hole is like 17 at Sawgrass. Yeah. It's only a short wedge. If you hit a good shot, you're going to make birdie. If you hit a poor shot, you're you're dead. You're in for double bogey. Um, so we can do that for for all holes on tour, and we can break it down even to look at key shots. So maybe on on uh, 18 at Sawgrass, the drive's a real key drive because you can get wet very easily. Um, but maybe the approach isn't as important. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we look at Zurich, uh, there's a few holes that, that stick out. And it's like the closing stretch, the key holes all set up for one one type of player to play one of them. If they play the, the odd tees, it sets up nicely for one group. And the guys playing the even tees, it sets up nicely for another. Okay. So basically it's like if you have a really good ball striker on your team, have them play one set. And then if you have somebody who's, you know, an accurate driver, good short game, putts well, then they're better at playing the other holes. Interesting. So you're just going to, like, watch tomorrow and laugh at all the teams that mess this up? Oh, if you don't think I'm going to criticize people, I might keep it <laughs> off Twitter, but but there'll be silent judgment for sure. <laughs> I bet. But, but Sean, Sean Morton at PGA Tour had a, had a good article where he touched on some of the strategy guys are using. Um, he mentioned that there's, you know, three par threes that are that one set of players will have to tee off on, mm-hmm. and the par threes here are really long. long yeah, a couple of them are similar holes, you know, with water to the left that they do set up for for one guy. If you're a great ball striker like Graham Dillette, you know, you better be tee off on those, and yeah. and uh, you get an advantage that that way. So, uh, if you were gonna pick one team. Who who would you be going with this week in a in a one and done like you know you had to pick one? See, I think Stenson and Rose are pretty generically solid in terms of how their games match up. Mm-hmm. Um, both being elite ball strikers. Um, I kind of do like how how Spieth and and Ryan Palmer set up. Um, Ryan Palmer is a pretty effective driver. He has a decent long game. Jordan Spieth is, is also, you know, he's very solid around the board in terms of his, his skill set. So I think they can fit well together. Palmer's a really poor putter and doesn't have a great short game sometimes. So that's not really that much of a sleeper. But Yeah, you, you didn't really give me give me any, any sleepers there. Yeah, um, I haven't really, haven't really dug into the player, player yeah. matchup too much. That's fine. Um, I'm kind of curious, since you guys advise Lee Westwood, and then you're probably really familiar with Terrell Hatton, I, I keep, whenever I watch him play, Hatton play, I think he, I feel like he's 
very similar to Lee Westwood when he was younger. Is that a good comp for him? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm still not sure exactly what Tyrrell Hatton does great out there. Um, I'm not terribly familiar with his game in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he's been putting out of his mind recently. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. Crazy ascension um, in the last 18 months. But, you know, it, I, he, I, 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 I just think it might be his build and his swing that, that always makes me think of Westwood. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting with Lee Westwood. Do you still think he can win a major? I mean, I might be crossing some client here privilege, but I still do. I, I've got like an ongoing bet with DJ Pajowski about it. Yeah, I absolutely think he can. Um, you see him put himself in the position often enough. Uh, the main challenge for him is just his his ability is deteriorating slowly, uh-huh. just age-related decline. So he's going to run out of opportunities where he's you know firing on all cylinders but in terms of do i think if he puts himself in the position he can get it done i absolutely do yeah especially since so many of the major courses fit his game so many of the major courses fit that sort of ball striking oriented drives it well hits his irons well sort of game it's that's a formula that works pretty much everywhere yeah absolutely (laughs) for sure it's um but uh i forgot what you, what you were researching what was that what what did we uh what did we ask the sti- is this i can't remember oh, the the breakout player yeah yeah who's your who's your breakout player if it, you know they could be outside the top 50 or i don't know where where you would term it ah uh, see i didn't do my homework i was too in, engrossed in the conversation no it's okay no it's fine it's a it's so here well, let's talk about a breakout player then Let's, like, have you looked in, in depth at, at Adam Hadwin at all? I have. I've looked at his game. Um, great putter. Ball striking is better this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of those things that, for some guys, it comes and goes season to season. You'll see a lot of guys ride a nice you know, breakout with the irons one season, and then you know whatever changes the next year, and they, they kind of lose it. But... Mm-hmm. He's a candidate where the rest of his game is good enough if if he can, you know, if that skill pr- proves uh, a little sticky and and stays around. You know, I I put him on a list that I did at the beginning of the year of breakout players, and I put him on there just like strictly because like I saw him in contention like twice last year, and like how you know is that a pretty good indicator like for a guy that gets into contention, you know, younger guys that get into contention relatively depending it doesn't matter really how they play on sunday but like just getting into contention is that a good indicator i mean anytime you're at the top of the leaderboard on a sunday or near the top you're playing great golf so yeah Mm -hmm. if someone's popping up in seventh place or ninth place a couple times over the summer then yeah so uh, that's always a good sign yeah so i want to dive into some twitter questions we got some good ones here um, Sean Rehorn uh, wanted to know, with all the data accumulated, like what surprised you the most? 
Um, what always amazes me is the narrow margins shot by shot between players. How uh, if your average proximity to the green is 32 feet versus 36 feet, you're one of the best ball strikers in the world, and 36 your average. You know, that, that kind of thing, all of these advantages magnified over hundreds and hundreds of shots produced the Tiger Woods. Uh, I've always found that incredible. See, that's something, though, that, like, is astounding to think is, like, 32 feet average proximity. And, like, because, like, I, this is, like, what we talked about with, like, learning how to play the game more is, like, understanding when you have a five iron in, like, 20 feet left is, like, a really good shot and not, you know, necessarily firing at the pin. And, like, when the average proximity is, like, 36 feet, that's, you know, most golfers would probably think it's like 20. Yeah, absolutely. Because all they're, all they're shown on TV is somebody sticking a wedge in from 100 yards mm-hmm. uh, with, to, to get an 8-footer for birdie. How do you, um, when you go to a tournament in person, what do you do? I'm kind of curious. If I'm going as a fan, I'll normally just follow a group, mm-hmm. follow a player. You know, If there's one or two guys I'm interested in, I'll follow them around. Um, and just, if I've never been to the course before, try to walk 18 holes and, and get a lay of the land. Uh, if I'm going there with a client, you know, to, to work with clients, you know, you'll go on a practice days mostly and, and be in meetings and on the range and not really get to see much of the course. Yeah. That, I, I kind of prescribe by the same theory you do when you're going as a fan is like, I always tell people pick, you know, a group. Don't pick, you know, like pick an off the beaten path group that like still has like really good players in it. Like, you know, like and just watch them play all 18 holes because they'll have less fans. It's easier to get around and you get to see like how they play a golf course. Yeah, absolutely. I like to go to the Travelers in Connecticut Mm -hmm. and that one. There's normally some high profile players who play there and but the other groups if the high profile groups are on the, the back nine, the, the front nine is, is desolate. You know, you can follow a group and be one of five people who are walking with them. Uh-huh. Um, and you just get to see every shot they hit throughout the round. Um, you know, I'm kind of curious you brought up the travelers and it, it spurred my memory to Patrick Cantley. And I wanted to get your kind of take. I know this is a limited stats, but like, what do you see from Patrick Cantley and, you know, obviously, I, everybody, I think, hopes he stays healthy. But what what kind of in his game has, you know, popped and why he's played so well and so few starts? Yeah, well, he's he's my answer for the breakout player, even though he might have already broken out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, already by the numbers through his first four or five tournaments back, he's, you know, he looks incredible. Looks like he's going to, you know, pick up easily and, you know, finish – as like a top 25 or top 50 player in the world once he gets enough once he gets enough starts yeah i, I mean I, he used to i mean he was unbelievable in college i it's it's unbelievable that he he uh kind of the whole thing that's happened and you know he he overshadowed spieth in college which is crazy you know and how good oh exactly been. yeah um uh, and those guys those guys who are 
number one, number two players in the world for a few years in college and, and as amateurs almost always turn out to be at the very least top 50 guys in See, the world. That's what I said to Tron the other day. And he, he, but like, cause like I still kind of, I still am in on Casey Wittenberg. You know, I think he's going to make yeah, it. Yeah, it might be a little long for Casey Wittenberg, but. <laughs> hey, I'm in on it. I haven't sold my property yet. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll see. Um, all right, Sean Martin wants to know, what's the next frontier for golf stats? And, you know, how will they more accurately depict what occurs on the course? What's the next frontier? He asked, like, three questions in one. We're yeah, Sean got a little greedy with that one. Yeah. Uh, I would say uh, just really create – so we have strokes gained, which is which is fantastic, and it's really helped us understand why players are getting it done uh, and why they aren't. So I think that's great. The next step is to, to dig into maybe more granular uh, examinations, mm-hmm. sort of like that missed fairway stat I talked about earlier. Um, uh, there's a, there was a great piece. I, I can't remember who wrote it from last year or the year before about what makes Jordan Spieth such a great putter. Uh, and it's because he always gets it to the hole. He always gives it a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a stat like that, like who are the guys who are always giving it a chance versus the ones who are trying to diet into the hole, just really these, these new stats to help us understand the parts of, of a player's game. Uh, and that's what we've seen in other sports. Uh, baseball has this, this, uh, radar system, which tracks everyone on the field now. And so you can, you can tell how far a player ran to catch a ball. And so they rank, you know, who's the fastest outfielder, you know, who makes more catches, who, you know, hits the ball the hardest. Uh, and all those sort of stats are, are, you know, getting people more comfortable with these, it just gives you more tools for for someone like for someone like Sean to to tell a story about a player, yeah. and to get fans interested. And in the broadcast can can use these things just just to tell the story a little bit better. So when Sam Saunders is out there, it's not just well he's Arnie's grandson. We can actually talk a little bit about a little bit about what makes him a good player. Yeah, I uh, I think that's you know it's the the out of the box narratives are are just awful. It's a, you know at least put put some context behind why he's a professional golfer rather than he's you know the son, or grandson of Arnold Palmer or friends with Jordan Spieth. It's uh, the stats can fill that void. Um, it can, this kind of relates to what you were just talking about, and I, I think this is uh, interesting. Like, do you have currently have the ability to, uh, with stats to tell who performs better on a back nine in a major or other bit, like a nerve stat? Yeah, we do calculate around basically um, looking at how someone plays in contention uh, under like stressful rounds, we call it. Uh, and that just looks at if you enter a round within a shot or two of the lead, um, how do you play with the lead? versus how you normally play so if you're so if you're rory mcelroy and you normally beat the field by x amount then how do you play under pressure and vice versa if you're if you're six back going into the fourth round how do you play um how do you play when there isn't as much to play for yeah um so yeah and there's 
a lot of work to be done in that area. We just, uh, just in the last few weeks, we've rolled out a basically a win probability model where we're going to be tracking um, with more exact numbers how people, if you have a 40% chance by our model on the 10th hole of the final round, you know, how do you play going in from there? Mm-hmm. So I think the data is out there. It's just a matter of, you know, putting it together. Who who, who would be who's like the the best in contention on your, by your metrics? So neither of these guys have been in contention very often. I think only about a dozen or fifteen times. But Thomas Peters and Matt Fitzpatrick pretty much always have gotten the job done when they're in in contention, or at least when I say got the job done, they've played better than they normally play uh-huh. in other rounds. I'm, 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 uh, I'm a big fan of Fitzpatrick. Do the stats prove out, you know, like, is he a really, you know, like, tell us a little bit about, like, what makes him so good. Uh, his ball striking's excellent, and his putting is excellent. Um, and those are two pretty decent cornerstones to build your game around. Yeah. Is he um, is, is Jordan Spieth a good comparison for him? I think Jordan Spieth is a longer hitter than him, mm-hmm. and I think I think Fitz might be a little bit better of a ball striker. Spieth kind of has these good years and these bad years, mm-hmm. but I think overall that's not a bad comparison for what for what Matt could be if he added some more distance to his game. That's sort of like a, you know, a high, high target for him to reach. Yeah, I mean, like, I imagine if he could have like some sort of like a Justin Rose like renaissance, like that. What that guy did to his game, like, is unbelievable to me. With like how he added like thirty yards, like it's not easy to add thirty yards to your tee shot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's been a handful of guys who have done that. Brendan Steele, like I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But Justin Rose is a completely different player than he was even eight or ten years ago. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely in play for for Fitz. Um, and when he already comes in here putting extremely well and ball striking is great, um, he could has a really high potential. Okay. I got a, I got a quick question for you. And next uh, first-time winner, uh, major winner, who's it going to be? Uh, so who among the league guys has won one? Fowler, Hideki, and John Rahm. Yeah, and then you've got a ton of young guys. You've got, you know, you've, well, you've got Paul Casey's right there, uh, Justin Thomas. Um, you got Norin, Hatton, uh, Kucher. Kepka. Yeah, so so I can't say Kucher, or I might get blocked on Twitter by some people. No, you can um, say Kucher. That's fine. You're in a you're in a, a safe haven here. We, we there's not as much hate on, on Kucher. <laughs> I kind of. Uh, uh, I would say the next next major winner is probably Rom, mm-hmm. first timer. Okay. I think his game sets up well for Aaron Hills. I think it sets up well for Quail Hollow too. Uh, so. I think he'll be in serious contention at both of those. It's, it's interesting. So we, I had this uh, talk with uh, Sarson and Tron and, and DJ after the Masters, and I was talking about how 
I'd probably take if I was if it was a major and I had three guys. I think Justin Rose would be in my three, like with you know probably Dustin and and Rory. Who would who would be your or Dustin and Spieth? Who would be your three that you'd pick if it was every major championship? You get your top three, and it you know regard you know knowing the courses. Yeah, I think I would pick Spieth because his game kind of travels to a lot of different courses mm-hmm. uh and then dj and rory because they're the best so yeah. that isn't very exciting but so i i'm but yeah i'm off base going with rose i mean rose is rose is a great player he's right up there in terms of ball striking travels so mm-hmm. okay all right um we're gonna get you out of here you've been uh, more than gracious with your time and listening to my stupid questions um, so let's go, let's go with our tradition of overrated, underrated. So you just, you know, you got to decide if they're, you know, no middle ground here. All right. Oh, I'm ready. Yeah. All right. Practice rounds. Underrated. As long as you do them right. What, what do you have to do to do them right? Um, I, I, we don't really work with players in terms of practice round type stuff, but I'd like to turn a few guys into some guinea pigs and figure out how to do them right. So well, that's that's I'll, where I'm coming from. I'll be your. I, I play practice rounds for these tournaments. What would you do if you were me in a practice round? So if you play a course that the pros play every year, um, I think we would just walk around and pick out maybe eight key shots in the round mm-hmm. and really talk through. Uh, caddy, stat geek, and player, and really talk through uh, strategy in terms of those shots. You know, bringing data and you know how comfortable a player is hitting a certain shot and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It's like because like when you're uncomfortable, that's usually when you hit bad shots. Yeah, that's why I try not to stray too much into criticizing players for laying up or you know whatever uh during tournaments is they might not be super comfortable hitting that particular shot in that particular win to that particular green that day yeah um and that the solution to that is just you know realize that that shot might be coming and and try to prepare for it interesting um all right the like the equipment transition period when you change equipment overrated i think so too it's it's so similar do you do you what do you guys see with like that i'm turning all these quick questions in the long one yeah it's not something that i know too much about i can't give you that much of an informed opinion laying up overrated all right so be aggressive be aggressive yes um Jet lag and international travel. Oh, wow. This is definitely properly rated. I think people really get it. Though I would say, let's say underrated, because you still see guys who are flying back from Asia to play in tournaments the next week, which is crazy to my mind. Bubba's doing it this week. Yeah. Bubba's doing it. Um, we There are a few guys who played in the... European tour event in India the week before the match play 
and that's basically flying around the world. Uh, we saw, at least anecdotally, what happened to Spieth a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think underrated in terms of how players uh, make their decisions. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, last question now, is, is Bubba and the golf balls? Has there been like a statistical change since he switched to the the, the putt putt balls? Yeah, he's terrible now. <laughs> um, the the ball striking's bad. His wedge play is bad, um, which makes sense if you're gonna play a, you know, if it's an inferior ball, if it's something he isn't used to. Um, but who knows? Who who has any insight into that head? So, do you think JB and them are going to use the the Volvic during alternate shot? I hope not, for their sake. <laughs> I can't imagine what it would be like to for JB Holmes to use a to use an orange or a pink ball that he's never hit before. I, I mean, in, uh, for nine holes or even eighteen. I, I remember I one time hit my mom's like women's ball and the way it launches with like a a, a nine iron is insanely different. <laughs> like I couldn't even imagine playing something like that and like trying to get used to it. Yeah, I think that's uh to play overrated, underrated on the ball thing, I think it seems like it would be something that I'd at least want my partner to uh spend some time with it the week before and in practice rounds getting used to it. So, so like the million dollars a year he gets paid by them, I, I think personally that he's losing that in on-course earnings. Oh, if he's playing like he is now, he's losing more than that. <laughs> he's, like a, he's like a $5 million player if he plays like he is the last few years. Uh-huh. And playing like this, he's, you know, he's going to make $3 million less probably. Unbelievable. If he can't figure something out. Yeah. Good, smart decision-making. But we'll, Who knows? We'll, he might turn it around and make us look at, like idiots for criticizing him. But Yeah, the Volvic revolution is happening. He just has to get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> he could just start painting the ball, too, you know? Yeah, do the, uh, what was it, Tiger used to do that? Yeah. Have somebody paint the Nikes, the swoosh one? Yeah. Yeah, I think he might just... I might want to just go to Titleist and say, "Hey, can you can you put some paint on these balls?" Yeah, that's uh, well, well. We'll get out on the Bubba talk. Um, thanks for coming on. And uh, if anybody doesn't follow Jake, uh, he's a great Twitter follow. If people are interested in in Fifteenth Club, um, I guess you just fill out a contact form. Yeah, we have a contact form on the website, um, and also just follow us on Twitter, and we're you know we're happy to talk on there. It's at uh, Fifteenth Club, uh-huh. um, and always you can reach out to me too. So awesome! Well, thanks. Happy for to talk on. golf.